Welcome to this podcast of the Champlain Society, recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in Toronto. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I am a professor of public policy and a historian. And I'm Kenna Turcott. I'm a lieutenant commander in the Royal Canadian Medical Service. I've always had a high degree of respect for veterans of the world wars, but after serving in Afghanistan, I developed a stronger connection to the struggles of our veterans. Of course, my service did not compare to what was experienced in the cold trenches of the Great War. However, I do have a keen understanding of the importance of medical care in war zones, because I was responsible for ensuring that our Canadian Armed Forces personnel received frontline medical support in what was definitely a combat zone. So I'm very excited that today we are going to explore the First World War with Jack Granitstein. Jack is a prolific and well-known Canadian historian who has written extensively about Canadian political and military history. These books include the one we're going to talk about today. It's entitled The Greatest Victory, Canada's 100 Days, 1918, published by Oxford University Press in 2014. Jack, welcome to this podcast. Thank you very much. I note that you start your introduction by stating that the victory at Vimy was, in your words, hugely important. But you conclude in this book that the Hundred Days battle in the last weeks of the war, from the 8th of August 1918 to the armistice of November 11th, was in fact Canada's greatest victory in the Great War. Tell us all the reasons why. Vimy was important. It's where the monument, the Canadian National War Memorial, is situated. It was the victory that made the Canadian Corps the efficient and effective and terrifying instrument of war that it was. But it didn't win the war. It didn't change the way the war was fought. It didn't change the course of the war, except that it forced the Germans to retreat a few kilometers to the east. The Hundred Days campaign uh, was very different the next year. It was a series of decisive battles that smashed the German army and that led directly to the armistice of November 11th, 1918. And in those battles, the four divisions of the Canadian Corps played a completely outsized role. They beat some one quarter of the German divisions on the Western Front, an astonishing feat, and one that has unfortunately been largely forgotten in Canada. So, Jack, take us on a guided tour of the Hundred Days. What happened and when? The Hundred Days are usually said to begin on August the 8th, 1918, when a combined force of British, Australian, Canadian, and French soldiers attacked the German lines at Amiens. And with the Canadians in the lead and advancing the furthest, they made the single greatest gain thus far in the war by Allied troops, a gain of some 13 kilometers on that August the 8th. And over the course of the next several days, they advanced a good deal further. The Canadians were then pulled out of the line and sent back north to their positions near Vimy, where they took part in a series of assaults that moved up to the Drocourt-Quéant line, which was the major German defense line uh, to the east of Arras in northern France, smashed through it, then reached the Canal du Nord, an unfinished 
deep, wide canal, uh, and in a brilliant, I think, General Arthur Curry's most brilliant uh, tactical uh, effort, they crossed the canal uh, and moved onto Cambrai, the center of German supplies, rail and road lines in northern France. Stopped the Germans from burning the city, liberated it, and then continued to move east, reaching Valenciennes uh, a few days later, and with a, a massive artillery assault, uh, smashed the German defenses there, uh, liberated the city, and continued their, their move to the east. By November 11th, the day the armistice came into effect, the Canadians had reached Mons in Belgium, where the British had first met the Germans in August 1914, and the Canadians symbolically liberated the place where the British expeditionary force had begun the war. It was an extraordinary uh, advance by great war terms, by any terms, and an extraordinarily costly one. 45,000 Canadian casualties in that series of 100 days battles. One quarter, sorry, one-fifth of all the Canadian casualties in the First World War in 100 days. Wow. What did these hard-won Days, these hundred days mean in terms of the eventual independence of the Canadian military from the British? Well, it's hard to say. The Canadians thought of themselves as part of the British Empire. They were part of the British Expeditionary Force. Uh, in the Second World War, we fight under British command effectively through the entire war. Uh, it takes a long time before Canadians think that they can and should be independent of the British. But there's no doubt that Canadian troops, from their commander, Arthur Curry, down to the men in the ranks, thought that they were, frankly, better than the British. They had more initiative, more drive, more uh, willingness to risk all to achieve things. There's a wonderful quote in Book Claxton's uh, biography, where Claxton became defense minister after the Second World War. He talks about his experiences in, in France uh, during the First War, when he was a gunner, sergeant major. And he talks about how when you had a, an artillery piece stuck in the mud, British soldiers would curse and say, forget about it. The Canadians, however, would say, let's get this wretched thing out of the hole and get the war over with. And he thought that summed up the entire difference between British and Canadian troops. Claxton came home a fervent nationalist. So did a lot of the men who'd fought the war, but they were still British Empire people. That lasted for quite a while. Okay. I, when, we, when we think of these outcomes, we often think of leadership. And uh, of course, this is critical in war. Can you give us a portrait of the different leadership styles of General Julian Bing, the British commander of the Canadian Corps, and his Canadian successor, General Arthur Curry? They're both first-rate generals. Bing is a cavalryman, British officer uh, who'd been in the Army a long time, uh, kind of rumpled, gruff, but he went into the front lines, he talked to the soldiers, he uh, was loved by them very quickly. He took over in the summer of 1916, and for the next 10 months, he was the leader of Bing's boys, 
as the Canadians called themselves when he was their commander. And when he was promoted to take over an army from being a corps commander, his suggestion, his pick, was that Arthur Curry should take over. Curry's very different. Uh, Bing was mustached and grizzled and looked like a soldier. Curry was a, uh, a large man, a fat man, supporting himself with a large stomach on what looked like pipe stem legs. He had no mustache. He had a fat face. He didn't look like uh, the idea of a soldier. And he wasn't, unfortunately, he wasn't popular with the Canadian troops. He didn't have any of uh, Bing's easy charm and easy ability to talk to privates and corporals. Curry tried, but he just couldn't carry it off. But he was a careful general. He did his own reconnaissance. He went out and looked at the ground. Uh, he worked well with his staff. Uh, he planned carefully. He used guns to save lives whenever he could. Uh, he was arguably the best Canadian general ever in the field. He was also arguably one of the two or three very best British generals uh, of the First World War. And there were suggestions, I think probably untrue, that either he or the Australian Corps commander, General Monash, might have been a successor to Haig if the war had gone on into 1919. I doubt that. I don't think any colonial, and that was how Bing was seen, uh, how, how Curry was seen by uh, British senior officers, would ever have been allowed to command a British expeditionary force. But the point is, he probably could have and done it as well or better than anyone else. Jack, in advance of uh, your book, The Greatest Victory, the Champlain Society published your extracts from the diary of Ivan Clark Maharg. Now, Maharg was killed in action on September 29, 1918. Uh, he was only 21 years old. What did you find so revealing about his diary? Well, he's a new officer who arrives at uh, one of the battalions of the Canadian Mounted Rifles, which, despite its name, is an infantry battalion, uh, in August 1918. And he's learning on the job. And you find in his diary that he's writing about uh, his Batman preparing a meal for him, about his role as the junior officer in the battalion, having to arrange... Uh, the mess for officers when they could eat together, about his uh, experiences in the uh, first advance he makes in the as the Canadians move up to the Drocourt-Quayot line at the end of August 1918. Um, it's just such a fresh uh, look at war by a man who clearly seemed to enjoy it uh, and knew that there was death all around him, but found the experience I think almost the word, the right word is exhilarating. Uh, one at one uh, entry in his diary, he talks about how most of the officers in his company had been killed or wounded in a battle, and yet he didn't seem dispirited. It was part of the job, and he was there, and he was carrying on. It's a terrible pity that someone like Maharg gets killed in the first month of his war. He's the kind of man who you think could have become a a great Canadian politician, uh, someone who would have understood what war was, what it meant, 
and what it brought out in people, the good and the bad. So, Jack, um, I remember when I wrote a paper on the Battle of Vimy Ridge, I didn't have access to letters such as the the one from Maharg or his diary. And uh, I, did, I did find it difficult to write that paper. What are the advantages of looking directly at these letters and memoirs over, say, just reading another book on the war? Well, a historian is supposed to do primary source research. You're supposed to get into the letters and manuscripts and government papers and commanders, staff plans, and so on. Um, it obviously gives you a flavor that you simply can't get by reading other monographs or other textbooks. One of the great beauties of the information age is that there is a huge amount of material online. Uh, there's a collection based at uh, on Vancouver Island called the Canadian Letters and Images Project, CLIP, and it's simply superb. It collects letters, diaries, photographs, documents, from all of Canada's wars, but it's especially rich on World Wars One and Two, naturally enough. And it's searchable, so you can go into that site and you can put in Vimy Ridge and a whole bunch of things will pop up. You, it'll identify Joe Doak's private uh, 22nd Battalion uh, and his letters and diaries and photographs of him and the documents that were sent to his his. Uh, wife when he was killed, all of those things are there. Uh, they've been preserved by families and sent to Vancouver Island University and put online by volunteer labor. It's an extraordinary resource that's available to anybody. So the next time you write your paper on Vimy Ridge, you can go and get the primary sources very easily. And they're wonderful. They're absolutely wonderful. I think it might be time to refresh that paper. Um, there's a, uh, I, I did take a look at the site beforehand, so for our listeners, uh, it's at www.canadianletters.ca. This year is also the 150th anniversary of Canada as a country. Um, do you think that, uh, that the Great War was a more significant event in Canada's evolution as a country than the Second World War? It's really hard to make that judgment. They're both hugely important. The first war, I think, is uh, the greatest thing that Canadians had ever done to that point. That was uh, Charles Stacey, the country's premier military historian's judgment uh, a number of years ago. And I think he's certainly right. It was a huge enterprise done by a country of just 8 million people that had never sent more than... Uh, 5,000 manned overseas in the South African War, and suddenly we have, we're raising an army of 620,000, splitting the country apart on conscription, uh, fighting and winning major battles, establishing, uh, to a substantial extent, our autonomy within the British Empire. Uh, it's, it's a huge effort. The Second World War is bigger. Uh, we raise 1.1 million men and women in uniform out of a population of 11 million. Uh, almost 1 million of that uh, number are volunteers. Think of that. One in 11 Canadians volunteers in the Second World War. Uh, 
Mackenzie King, the Prime Minister, unlike Borden, the Prime Minister in the first war, struggles very hard to avoid conscription. And when he's forced to implement it, he does it only in a partial way. The country, in other words, is strained, but it doesn't split. That's a huge achievement. We're also, unlike in the First World War, a major producer of munitions, uh, food, uh, materials, minerals, all the uh, materiel of war comes out of Canadian factories and fields and mines. Uh, Compared to the First World War, when we produced something like $1 billion in in munitions and supplies. In the Second World War, it's $16 billion, I think. And that's a, a huge difference that suggests that the country had industrialized more, that uh, it had been mobilized more efficiently. The resources of Canada had been tapped well to participate in this war. In terms of the military contribution, uh, The 1st Canadian Army was, by the end of the war, arguably the best little army in the world, which is the title of a book I wrote on it. Um, It may even have been true. I thought I should perhaps have had a question mark at the end of that title. But I think you could argue it was true. It was very efficient, very effective in beating the German army. The other major contribution was the Air Force. In the first war, something like 22,000 Canadians flew or supported air power. In the second world war, it was a quarter million. And they made up, those Canadians made up a very substantial portion of the British Commonwealth's contribution to the air war. Canadians flew a good-sized part of the bombing raids against Germany. They flew fighters, uh, they flew transports, uh, anti-submarine warfare uh, aircraft. They played a huge role in the air. And the Navy convoyed something like one half of all the ships across the Atlantic. So the country's role in the war was vastly different than in the first war. Uh, And arguably in terms of uh, contribution to Allied diplomacy, we were perhaps the equivalent in the Second War to the First. Mackenzie King was not a leader who was going to push very hard for a say in the councils of the uh, great powers. Borden perhaps had a little more brass and a willingness to push. King really wasn't cut out for that. He wanted us to be a good ally. But he was also, like Borden, willing to fight for what he saw as Canadian rights when it came to push or be pushed. So King King wasn't quite as spineless as he's sometimes been portrayed, but he was certainly effective enough in creating a great Canadian contribution to the Second World War. Jack, uh, we want to thank you for keeping our Canadian military history alive and sharing your insights with us today. Uh, We really enjoyed revisiting the Great War with you. Thank you very much. There's a lot of people working on Canadian military history, more than, arguably, more than most fields of Canadian history. And they publish more, and it's really good stuff. There's very good work being done on Canada's Army, Navy, and Air Force. Thank you, Jack. Yes, we're hoping, in fact, to interview at least one other person on the Great War over the next while, so uh, we'll keep that in mind. I want to remind our listeners this podcast 
and Jack Granite Scenes extracts from a Harg's Diary are available on the Champlain Society website. Please visit us at www.champlainsociety.ca. My name is Greg Marshallden. And I'm Kenna Turcott. Our guest today was the prominent Canadian historian, Jack Granitstein. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Sabrina Birch, Cindy Long, and Vince Piet. Thank you. Thank you.